Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. I am the Seth Bird controller for the Nintendo GameCube. And I am the Game Boy Advance Eric Reader. And uh, <laughs> listen, man, I'm, I'm not sure how this happened. I'm sure it's my fault somehow, but I, I promise you, promise you I'm going to fix this. Oh, what, what now? What are you talking about, Eric? Are you kidding me? A new Prince of Persia game just came out. Golden Sun just released. And now we even have a young Indiana Jones running around again. It's pretty clear we're suffering some kind of time dilation event. We, I don't want to say it too loud, but we may have even entered the retro zone. Well, given our history with time dilation events, I can see why you might think that, especially since our indie showcase, Legend of Grimrock, just released. It's also already 12 years old at the same time. Uh, it's also simultaneously a throwback to games from four decades ago. I can't wait to talk about it. You know, maybe we are in the retro zone. Yes, exactly. Thankfully, there were a ton of weird technologies released during the retro era, especially talking about video game peripherals. What we need to do is we need to start cataloging the weirdest ones, and maybe I can jerry-rig some of that technology to help get us home. Hmm, you think we should be cataloging weird retro game peripherals, like in a in a list, maybe, perhaps? Possibly even organized into a concise top five? Yes, 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 yes. I like where your head is at. Well, look, man, there's no time dilation event. I promise it's just been that kind of week. You really don't need to make any more weird reality warping devices. The hype detector from last week was more than enough. Are you are you sure? I mean, I I really thought we were back in like the 90s for a while. And I was I was actually going to take advantage of that while we were here. I, I even invited our friend Sam, the third strongest mole, over to play some Mega Man X, you know. Because it's rad. It is rad. I'm sure Sam wouldn't still mind coming over for some Mega Man X. The game actually just celebrated its 30th anniversary of its North American release yesterday. So while we're at it, how about we just have Sam join us for a fun all-in retrospective on the iconic sequel series? You know, come to think of it, I, I guess this episode kind of turned out to be our own version of the Retro Zone. You know, the retro zone was the retro friends we made along the retro way. Now, ladies and gentlemen, imagine, if you will, that it's time to go all in. Folks, we might not be in the retro zone specifically, but we are here for a retro exactly. But we are here for a fun and retro-filled episode of All in a Nintendo Podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show where each and every week no shells left unturned and no point is left unearned. Happy to be here with you this week, Eric. Good to see you. Happy hope to be well. here with you as well. I am well. I hope you're well. I'm well. I'm as I'm as well, well as I then. can be. Well. Well, well, well. Uh, you know what we should do, though, first. Before we get into all of our, you know, weird um, retro zone shenanigans, uh, we should do something that we do every single week here on the show. Absolutely. We need to shout out the members of the All In Zone Patreon. 
That's, <laughs> yes. That's the best Rod Serling I can do right now. The, and and uh, like we, we referenced Twilight Zone like a few times on the show. And I do feel like it's to a vanishingly small audience of people <laughs> who even know what it is at all. But you know what? I'm here for it because I know what it is and I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we need to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash all in podcast. Huge thanks to our friends and supporters over there. Special our golden banana tier supporters like Rob Yapel, Sean, Sean O'Baggins, Ashton, Tim A, a.k.a. Neo Prime 33, a.k.a. Nintendo Dad number four, Matt, Shy Guy City Murray, Phelan Ward, Bill Tucker, Marcus O'Neill, Liam D, Gamer Jason, Andrew Wilkins, Foolish Fuji, Alan, Hashtag Look to the Cookie, and Solo Something. Huge thanks to our Golden Banana Bunch. You can join their ranks with a seven-day free trial over there on Patreon. But moving into our Triforce tier, you think Josh Vaughn, the godfather of Tingle Love Tuesday, John Datfast Cummins of the Retrologic Podcast, as well as the On Topic Retro Podcast, the Globe Trotting Jet Set Nintendo Hub and Sparky of the Nintendo Hub on YouTube, Adam Caparello of the Retro Groove Podcast, Shy Guy, the other half of our Shy Guy Mod Squad. Thank you, Shy Guy, Daniel Hinojosa, Dan and Luma, Bowza, the Keeper of the Hugs, and the Retro Legend himself. You have now crossed over into the Uncle Randy zone. <laughs> do, 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 do. Uncle Randy, Uncle Randy. <laughs> hey, it works. It, it works. works. I dig it. Thank it's you, Uncle right Randy. Amount of syllables. Thank you, Uncle Randy. Uh, huge thanks to our friends and supporters on Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash all in podcast. Three tiers of support. Free trial to the uh, Golden Banana tier. You can see the exclusive content for yourself. You can also support the show by picking up some merch at bit.ly slash all in merch. And if you don't have any bones to throw away, that's okay too. You can drop some words. Leave us a five-star review on your podcast uh, podcatcher of choice, just like an anonymous person did on American iTunes, leaving us a five-star review this past week. We appreciate you, whoever you are. You didn't drop words, but we still see you, and we thank you for leaving us a review. And you can do the same. Very quick and easy way to support the show. Thank you very Um, much for that. Yeah, thank you. But Eric, with all that being said, what have you been up to this week, my friend? Uh, Obviously, the big one for me is uh, the brand new Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown, that Mm -hmm. just dropped this past week. I went ahead and picked up the deluxe version, so I've already been playing it for several days. And make sure to look out for our full review of the game on next week's episode. We are going to be doing our full review of Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown, next week. So I won't be sharing too many thoughts. Although I will say, spoilers, I may have a couple decent things to say about the game next week. I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. Yeah, once you've uh, once you've finished it, it should be fun. I am too. Uh, I will also say that, you know, because I we may be suffering from a time dilation event, Seth, because I'm going to say I've been playing a game that, as of this recording, I haven't actually played yet. Because uh, <laughs> by the time you're listening to this, I will have also played and even recorded a first look for a brand new Switch game. It's brand new on the Nintendo Switch. It's a really unique, really interesting looking puzzle game that I was not aware of until this past week when it dropped on Nintendo's hybrid console. But apparently it's been a thing on on PC for a while. But you can see uh, the all-in first look of the Nintendo Switch version of The Pedestrian now on YouTube. And 
My thoughts on it? Well, you'll have to watch the video because this version of Eric hasn't played it yet. But by the time you're listening to this, I will have time travel. That's true. Yeah, we uh, we got a code for that. So thanks to the uh, yes. publisher who passed along a code. And yeah, you should uh, if you go to the the YouTube channel right now, it should be a, uh, a video up of, of Eric playing it. So looks really neat. Yeah. Another big thing that I've been playing this week is uh, yet another thing we got a code for. Another thank you to uh, to the company, but uh, also been discovering the legend of Grimrock. Mm-hmm. So. But in addition to us talking about Prince of Persia next week, likewise, The Legend of Grimlock is our indie showcase this week. So I also don't want to share necessarily too many thoughts on that. And the last one I'm going to shout out is, again, by the time you're listening to this, uh, Eric, in the current present of when you're listening to this, will have already purchased and probably played for at least a few minutes the brand new uh, Trace Memory collection so oh yeah uh, another code recollection i believe is the name of that specific mm-hmm. duology uh so again weirdly stacked week of releases here in the middle of january but my friend what have you been up to i'm looking forward to hearing your your thoughts on the another code i'm gonna pass I on it too. for now um, but, but I'm, I'll, I'll be looking forward to hearing what, what you have to say about it. I've heard some like kind of mixed reviews, um, and the demo kind of unsold me on it to be honest, yeah. but, um, but I'll be curious to hear what you think about it once you get a chance to play it. Um, yeah, for me, I, I did a lot of stuff in Prince of Persia. I'm at like 98% on Prince of Persia. Unfortunately, uh, I do have a treasure that is bugged. Um, and I'm, I'm waiting oh, on a no. patch. Yeah. And, and I, I know a few other people who played the game pre-release who have also got a few things bugged for them. So I've not quite 100%ed Prince of Persia, but I'm close. Um, once they patch it, I'll be able to go in there and 100%. So hopefully there's that. But in the meantime, you've not had to twist my arm too much to go back into <laughs> Cobalt Core. Um, <laughs> no, no, you were playing it last night too when I was on Prince of Persia myself. Yeah, I, I've played a you know bunch more Cobalt Core, still chipping away at that. I've only got like three more memories to unlock nice. before I kind of finish the game. Um, still playing Knights of the Rogue Dungeon every morning. Um, it's a great sort of like you know wake the brain up kind of game. Yeah, that new really like one. that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a good like you know just kind of wake up morning coffee, shake the rust off your brain a little bit, and you know I like it. It's um you know it's it's still a fun little thing. Yeah, I saw an um, accolades trailer for that. It said it was instantly addictive, so I've got to just go yeah. off of that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know who said that, but I heard that person's very attractive. Whoever said it. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course, I've Legend of Grimrock. Legend of Grimrock. We'll, we'll talk more about Legend of Grimrock here in just a sec. Um, so I won't say too much on that. Um, I will say you alluded to this uh, last week, but I'll just reiterate. Little Guardsman is a game yeah. that's coming out next week. On the 23rd, um, I'll have a video up on the YouTube channel of that. I can't give impressions yet, but we're more than likely going to make that next week's Indie Showcase. So yeah, we're we probably going to chat about that next week yeah so we'll 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 talk either way we're going to talk more about little guardsman next week yep um so stay tuned for that um i want to shout out uh tools up ultimate edition um thank you to the publisher who gave us a code for that who actually they went a little bit of above and beyond we had a little bit of weirdness with the code and they they were able to help me out with it and i made a video on the youtube channel of playing through a little bit of it with my wife 
which was fun because um, that game tools up for those who don't know is local multiplayer only. So you can't do any single player. You can't do any online. You can only do local multiplayer with tools up, which I think is probably the game's biggest miss. Um, it's like, cause it is fun. Like I, I do like it, but it's really hard because you know, the sort of one sentence pitch of this game is overcooked, but home renovation, you know, is, is basically the one it's, it's a very similar kind of setup and vibe. It's a cooperative sort of step-by-step let's work together, but there's a little bit of chaos thrown in, you know, sort of thing. Um, but because it doesn't have like online and stuff and it doesn't have any sort of single player component, it's hard not to just like, if you want something like this, it's hard not to just like go play overcooked instead, (laughs) you know, frankly. Um, but it is still really cool. Like I, I like the sort of home renovation aspect of it. Um, I, and there is one sort of accessibility option with tools up that I do really like. And that is you can turn off the timer. If you want it to just be a kind of more chill experience, you can disable the timer and have a much like that removes so much of the stress, which is what I get so much anxiety playing overcooked um, because that timer is like looming over your head the whole time and it just becomes so chaotic, which like is the point of overcooked, but it also is what kind of like makes my hair stand on end when I, (laughs) when I play overcooked, especially with my wife who has, you know, 15 years of experience in the restaurant business and is yelling at me the entire time. So we, um, (laughs) so we played tools up and it was just a much more sort of chill experience kind of working through these little situations. And the game does have a nice like ramp up of the, Um, the sort of mechanics, like it does get a little bit more mechanically dense. There are a few little tweaks that I, that I would make to it. Um, but you know, overall it's a fun little thing. And I will say they launched it on like a crazy discount. It's got all the DLC included and like the launch window discount is like an 80% plus it's like six 99. I think it's crazy. Wow. So yeah, it's like very cheap. Um, but again, there's no single player. There's no online. So if you don't have anybody to play it with, you will get no use out of this game. So just do be aware of that. Um, but yeah, it's cool. You can watch the, the YouTube video. I had, you know, I had fun playing with my wife. Um, I've already had a few people, you know, reach out and say that they enjoyed the video and stuff. So um, it's, you know, go check out the video if you kind of want a sense of what that is. And, you know, yeah, kind of fun. Fun thing. Um, and then the last thing I'll just quickly shout out. I don't have very deep thoughts on this yet. I'll probably talk more about it next week, but I did start Thirsty Suitors this week. Oh, um, okay. Okay. I've played like the first hour of it. Very, very early days, but um, you know, it's it's cool, but I haven't like it, it seems it's a little overwhelming all at once, at least in the first hour or so. I feel like it's throwing like a lot of mechanics at me. And I'm kind of like just trying to get through to a place where I feel a little bit more comfortable with everything the game has going on. Cause the game is like not only a skateboarding game, not only a life sim game, not only like a turn-based RPG, like it's also, it's got all these like relationship things and side quests and a little city to explore. Like there's so much going on and it kind of just dumps it all on you in the first hour. 
Yeah. And um we've yeah, been it's a we've lot. been watching this game for a while now. I feel like we watched the same trailer for this game at five separate presentations, but that was always my biggest concern is I felt like this game was going to be incredibly uh it, I felt like this game was going to be overreaching possibly and I was worried that it was going to wind up being unfocused. Yeah, I mean, I again, it's it's too early for me to make a call on that, but you know, just in the early moments of the game, it definitely feels like a lot. Um, so I don't know. I'll I'll I'm going to keep playing and I'll I'll report back, you know, later on. But I will say like one thing I was worried about with this one is I was worried that it wasn't going to perform well on Switch and it it performs just fine. It nice. it runs perfectly fine on Switch, no. so <laughs> no um no worries on that front. So I'm looking forward to playing more and getting into it. It also has like a little bit of that, you know, like it's I really don't want to sound mean, but but like it it's a little too close to like a Scott Pilgrim. Like, it, like that, that was also kind of the vibes I got from it, but I, I still yeah. would like to check it out at some point, but it did certainly look like it was wearing kind of that inspiration on its sleeve. I mean, you wind up fighting your own exes. You're not necessarily yeah, you, fighting yeah. evil exes on, you know, for the sake of trying to, you know, it's not necessarily the exact copy and paste plot, but in an incredibly visually vibrant, over the top, incredibly self-referential video gamey style world, you are specifically going through a unique combat system with your own past relationships. So yeah, like, it's yeah. very, it's like they, they know what they're doing, but like it, it's a little too, like it's a little too close. I don't know. We'll, we'll see again. I'm going to let it cook. Um, I've heard really good things about the game. There are people who love this game. So um, I'm hoping that it kind of like reveals a little bit more to me as I get deeper. And I guess I've only played like an hour of it, but those are just early impressions. Um, But with all (laughs) that being said... Yeah, between between all the games we just mentioned, everybody's like, none of you are playing Golden Sun. Neither of you are playing Golden Sun right now. No, not right now. Not yet anyway. Revoking your gamer card. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, I do. Um, I, I actually, I'm trying to convince my cousin to do a golden sun stream with me. So we'll see if that happens. Cause he and I, like we were obsessed with that game when so it first good. came out. So and good. I, uh, I'm so glad I, I'm, we have it. I am too. And I, I really, I want to convince him to do like a little like nostalgic, you know, stream with me. So we'll, yeah. we'll see if that happens, but yeah. Yeah, and if you have the Game Boy or if you have the Nintendo Switch Online expansion pack and you don't have something to play this weekend, you should absolutely check out Golden Sun. You really should, especially mm-hmm. if you're an RPG fan. I agree. But, Eric, moving into uh, truly into the retro zone, we've got such a fun indie showcase this week. I'm so happy we're covering this game this week. I am too. I I've really not historically spent a lot of time on my PC gaming. So there are just a lot of games that I frankly am completely unfamiliar with even games that have been out for over a decade. I'm completely (laughs) unfamiliar with, but one such game with already more than 10 years to its name just made its console debut on Nintendo's, uh, hybrid uh, platform. So I'm really, really excited for this one, Seth. 
I am too. This is uh, this is one that, that I've loved for a while. When I saw it was coming to Switch, I immediately reached out to the developer and self-publisher, Almost Human, who were gracious enough to pass along a code for us to check the game out. Folks, I'm so I'm so stoked about this. Our indie showcase this week is 2012's Legend of Grimrock. So Legend of Grimrock is a now nearly 12-year-old game that uh, originally released back in April of 2012 on the PC from a very small Finnish uh, studio called Almost Human. Um, they finished what? They they finished Legend of Grimrock <laughs> and uh, recently ported it to the Nintendo Switch, of course. And uh, it's it's really great to to get to re-experience this game. I'm excited to tell you all about it. This is a old school grid based dungeon crawler. Please be excited. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Legend of Grimrock is, you know, we've we've gotten a lot of throwback style experiences on the Nintendo Switch this past week. We got a brand new Prince of Persia game, we got the Golden Sun games, and we got this, frankly, like, doubly throwback experience. Not only is the original version of Legend of Grimrock, like Seth said, 12 years old, originally came out back in 2012. It was really weird to see the copyright 2011 <laughs> on this game when I booted it up on the Nintendo Switch this week. Uh, but the game itself, like you know, harkens back to a lot of those old first-person grid-based, like classic, classic style RPGs from the old PC days when you know, a gigabyte of memory was probably the collective total on the entire planet. Uh, but there is there is an undeniable charm to this game that I was instantly, instantly taken with. And uh, there's a lot of really interesting decisions. I do think we should manage expectations about this game because, again, this game is already 12 years old, something I didn't realize Uh Seth told me was this is actually the console debut yes. of this game. So this is the first time that we're seeing it on any type of, of console whatsoever. And uh, I do think that 2012 release date, you know, should temper a couple expectations, but that's not to say that there, there isn't a lot of old school goodness to be seen here. Yeah, this is, I mean, again, this is a, a sort of, yeah, a 3d grid based, dungeon crawler game which means when i say grid based i mean that the movement through these dungeons is on a grid system the map the way that these dungeons are mapped out is by grids is by squares and you're going to be moving from square to square to square and it's like yeah. it's one at a time it is you know it, it is sort of like a slow methodical sort of you know puzzle heavy combat heavy dungeon crawler yeah tile based tank mm -hmm. controls, you know, all that good stuff. And, you know, I love it even when you're, even before you get into the game and there's a, there, there's a ton of different things that you can choose from. Uh, there are three different difficulty levels and there are several things, but one of my favorite is one of the options is quote unquote old school mode. Yeah. <laughs> because the original games in the genre didn't have all the quality of life enhancements that we get to enjoy these days. You didn't have a mini map. You didn't have any type of functionality to tell you where you needed to go, where you'd been. Uh, so it, even before getting into the game, they give you the option to a, uh, enable or disable old school mode. And within the game, it actually says 
turns off auto mapping completely, arm yourself with a stack of grid paper and pencils and be prepared to get lost in the dungeons. I love that so much because like I, I see the grid paper and the pencils and trying to, you know, just connect the dots on the grid paper to desperately and terribly try to make a map for myself. Like we, you know, the way we used to write codes in the back of SNES instruction manuals, because we had no clue how precious those things were, you know, just I'm instantly transported back to the, the eighties and and early nineties, just from seeing that, like that immediately kind of set the tone and set the vibes before I even jumped into the game. Yeah. I mean, like the, the way this game started, it was a, basically this, this like hobby project began development in 2001, a dungeon master clone, uh, called Dungeon Master 2000. Dungeon Master, for those who don't know, is this game from the 80s. That is, yeah, this grid base. It kind of, you know, really pioneered this, you know, now long forgotten genre. And there are a couple other games like Eye of the Beholder that are kind of in the same vein. But, um, but yeah, like they're they're working on this thing in 2001. They end up naming it Escape from Dragon Mountain and released it in 2004, again, just as a hobby project. But in early 2011, that's when they said, well, let's actually grow this out into like a commercial release. And yeah, this little, you know, four man team in in Finland, um, you know, called Almost Human wound up uh, putting this thing out. And uh, yeah, it's even back then, like even when it came out in 2012, like it was a throwback, like it was a throwback even then. And especially now it feels like a throwback, but I will say like, you're, you're going to have to, like, you're either going to love or hate that about this game. Like this just is what this game is. But, um, but I will say like, there are certain things about it that I think anybody would be able to appreciate. We, we were chatting cause, cause you're finally getting to play this for the first time now that it's on switch, as I think a lot of people will, like exactly, the, yeah. The setup of this game is Dude, really the con- cool. The conceit of this game is amazing. Now, the the entirety of the game just takes place within a single dungeon. That just is the game. You are trying to get out of Mount Grimrock. That's the entirety of the game. It's not this big overworld that you get to explore, but the narrative. Uh, conceit that they thrust you into this adventure with is really, really good. You, you know, kind of like classic style tabletop RPGs, you have this group of four uh, characters whom uh, comprise one of uh, four or, you know, a mixture of the four different available races within the game, which are humans, minotaur, lizard people, and insectoids, which by itself is amazing. Uh, but you have these four characters who are the very definition of reluctant companions within the world of, you know, within the world of uh, legend of Grimrock, this mountain is essentially a, a dungeon of amnesty where hardened criminals are thrown in, they have the option of being thrown in to Mount Grimlock. They are granted penance, they are granted amnesty, and they are free to go about their lives and do whatever they want. The one hitch being they actually have to get out first. So you play as a group of four prisoners 
who are literally chained together within the narrative of this game. You are all literally bound together in chains. And these this party of four prisoners is literally kicked like this is Sparta kicked into into Mount Grimrock and basically said, "Okay, you have been pardoned. Try not to die. And that's just such a cool, cool concept and setup. I love it. Yeah, it's it's like a like a suicide squad kind of vibe. Yeah, you know, to it. I I really like that. And it also my my favorite thing about that is it is it makes sense. Like it makes the the actual gameplay is so much more cohesive because you have this party of four who are again chained together just trying to escape. So it makes sense that the game is a grid based dungeon crawler because that's how you would be moving as a unit of four people chained together. And, um, one of the crucial things about the way your, your party is composed is you have sort of two frontliners and two sort of like people in the back and yeah. the two people in the back are going to have to attack with like ranged or like other types of like not strictly in your face melee attacks. And, um, and like even that makes sense because of the narrative setup of the game. It's low key really brilliant. And one of my favorite things about it is just kind of the headcanon I created for these characters <laughs> because of it. Because it is still a very classic style game with puzzles and, and locked doors and, and stuff like that. But I was running around grabbing all these keys. And in my head, I just imagine every time this group of chained prisoners picks up a key, they try it in their shackles <laughs> and are and are just further like depressed when it doesn't work. Just every time we pick up a bronze key or an iron key, just click, 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 click. Uh, not that one (laughs) not that one exactly (laughs) yeah man it's um it's great i i love the the story and it's it's a great example of like getting a lot out of very little because like the game does have like a a conclusion and there is like a little bit of a story but like 99% of the story just is the setup it's just one of those purely good setups like the the game is so bare bones, but it gets so much out of what little it has. Like there's barely even any music at all. Like there's like a main menu sort of little piece of music, but otherwise the game is almost completely ambient. Um, and like there's, it's just like completely, it's giving you everything it is on the face. And, uh, and I really, I like that. It, that even I think is an old school throwback design sensibility before the days of, you know, being able to just have music and, and all these like intense visuals flashing in front of you constantly, you know, this is a stripped down experience in a way that I really dig. Yeah. Another thing that I really enjoyed before I even got into the game is the first run that I did where I wound up getting cornered and murdered by some weird tree things. It'd be like that. Uh, It'd be like that sometime. But on my second playthrough, I was like, let me check out this character creation because the game, if you just want to jump into a game, the game allows for that. It has these custom built pre-built characters that you can just begin an adventure with. However, if you want to actually take a few minutes and go through and 
you know, customize your character loadout if you just are bound and determined to have four fighters in your group. If you want to have, if you want to create, like, again, if you want to emphasize your own headcanon and have an entire group of like four minotaurs and write their own backstory or something, you can do that. You can have four insectoids. You can have any combination of mages, rogues, or fighters. There are skill points like you are looking at D&D character sheets for all intents and purposes when you are starting this game up, when you go into the character creation. So you create this team of four and just seeing that and allocating skill points to stuff like strength and dexterity and vitality and even giving other skill points to a completely separate thing like athletics and aggressiveness and uh, being able to give characters specific traits Uh, There are a couple that are even race-specific. There's one trait that is specifically only for insectoid characters Mm -hmm. that basically enhances their defense by giving them, I guess, like a carapace or something. Like a chitinous hide. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to just jump into the game, you absolutely can. But if you want to create your own custom team, the the game gives you quite a few options and, and quite uh, quite a few points to kind of allocate as you will that being said there are you know especially from the offset there are things there are pros and cons to each of the individual uh, races uh, like specifically if you're going to play as a minotaur you're going to have a lot of extra strength and a lot of extra you know kind of toughness to you but you may but you only get like one skill point for Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like the the aggressiveness and the agility and the athletic side of things. Uh, there's also heat resistance and cold resistant. Again, you know, this is a game that is very, very much a throwback to that era of RPGs. You know, those original video game RPGs that took direct inspiration from things like D&D. Yeah, but I mean, but even still, though, if you don't want to mess with any of that, you can just jump right in yep. with a party of four prefab characters who, like, they'll just kind of give you, like, here here you go, like, here's your melee dudes, here's, like, your, you know, your mage and, like, your rogue sort of character. They'll, they'll just throw that out there, you know, and, um, and that's a great way to just, like, even get started with the game. Um, and I, I, I think that's really smart. Like, I think that for... For what they have here, this being a fairly old school, like hardcore game, um, they've made it pretty easy to jump into. And another thing that this game does that I always really love it when, when a game does this, it rewards the player for their knowledge. Um, and a good example of this is the way that the magic system works in this game is like, it's all on this like sort of runic sort of three by three like grid and you know when when the game starts off just to do a basic fireball you basically just you know activate the top left rune which you would only know to do if you found a scroll that told that's what you, i was gonna say like i really wish i had known that <laughs> yeah the, if you don't find the scroll that that you know how you know then you're not going to know how to cast fireball and then later there's like sort of patterns and sequences for more complicated spells that you yep. sort of have to uh activate and um and, you know, it's it's sort of rewarding you for that knowledge. And if you have those, like, literally, if you start the game and you have a character that has the skill, like, appropriate to cast one of those spells and you just know how to do it, you don't have to find the scroll. You can just do it, you know? And I I really like that. I think the, the game has a really good sense of sort of, like, rewarding you 
for your knowledge of playing it. And I think that because of that, it makes the game way more replayable than you might think, considering that this is not like a roguelike sort of thing. Like it, it has a little bit of a of replayability to it because you can go back on a future run and be like, I could get through this way more easily now that I kind of know what I'm doing, you yeah. know? Yeah. There's, you know, I, the, this, uh, you know, we'll reiterate this game was released in, in 2012 before the massive rise of the, the roguelike genre. So yeah. if you are jumping into this experience, kind of expecting from the conceit of all it is, is you jump into with a party if the, the dungeon literally is the game in, if this game came out, if it had originally released in 2023 or 2024, I think this game absolutely would have been a roguelike, uh, but you know, such is not the case. Unfortunately, I think if they did an update to the game, you know, I'm not saying they should make every game roguelike, but I'm just saying it's like, this would be pretty cool. But, uh, but, but if you are jumping into this game, uh, you will find that, uh, it is the same map on each level. You'll run into the exact same monsters. You'll run into the same gear. So, uh, you know, a lot of the variety from this game is admittedly going to come from playing through on different difficulties, playing through with different characters, and maybe like maybe just go ham, maybe do that full party of fighters that I was talking about. Do a, a self-imposed challenge run or something. Yeah, or yeah, d- like dump into a bunch of mages and just like you know see what you can do. It's it's funny because like I um I find there there's something like cozy about that because when I and you can literally watch this happen uh, on our YouTube channel in the video that I put out. I hadn't played the game since it originally came out, and I had played that sort of the the first like few levels. Um, the, I think the the actual like Mount Grimrock. I think it's thirteen levels in total. Um, yes. And each one is actually like fairly meaty, especially as you get into it. You'll, you know, you could probably spend 30, 45 minutes, an hour on each sort of level of the, uh, of the dungeon if you, if you wanted to. So the game is probably going to take you somewhere in that sort of like 10 hour range. Um, but even like going through and booting up the game on Switch for the first time for the video, uh, I found myself, because again, I was so familiar with that intro sequence of the game, like I fell straight back into it, even though it had been at least a decade since I'd played the game. I was like, oh, right. I remember this is where this scroll is. And I remember pushing in the <laughs> the loose rock on the wall. And I remember, yep. you know, I remember where those weird little tree guys are. And um, I don't know. There's something very like cozy about this game. And um, I would love to see if they were to do like a Grimrock three, I would love to see like a roguelike mode or something, but there is something about the like deliberate design of uh of this, this sort of type of game. I, I would love to, you know, I would love to see a roguelike sort of mode, but I do, I do find it so cozy to go in there and kind of fall straight back into something I'm familiar with. Yeah. And some of the things that you can kind of expect to run into throughout Mount Grimrock, uh, I do really like the monster designs. They also feel very, very classic, but it, like you imagined a lot of those original grid-based RPGs to be from you know, the mid eighties and, and early nineties, but you know, much more high res and much more fleshed out character designs, you know, at least for 2012. But honestly, 
I still think they look really good for the Nintendo Switch. You've got giant spiders, giant crabs, giant slugs. Basically, if it's ooey or gooey, there's a giant version of it that's probably trying <laughs> to kill you in this game. But in addition to that, there's skeleton knights, undead archers, and and all kinds of, you know, a lot of the classics are here. Uh, slimes are even in here. So oh, yeah. you'll run into a lot of those and... Uh, you know, a lot of them will have projectile attacks. A lot of them will have different, uh, you know, they'll come at you from different angles. You can still, you know, use the grid system very much to your, you know, your advantage in this game, especially in the early going. But uh, you know, these uh, expect things to get a lot more complicated as things go on from from several different perspectives. But I do like how how much the combat makes sense in the game it is still a party combat system but it makes complete sense within the context of the game that you're playing Mm -hmm. essentially whenever you find yourself in a combat situation whenever you need to attack you have your four party members your two in front your two in back who you have hopefully equipped with some type of implement Uh, hopefully you've given or found some you know weapons knives cudgels whatever for your fighters and hopefully you know a couple spells or have a couple throwing knives for your rogue uh you hit the the zl button and you basically go into combat mode and each of your individual party members has a one button press attack and they will attack whatever's you know directly in front of them most melee attacks are only going to go one square but if you've got something like you know, a throwing knife or a rock or something, then that can go much farther, obviously. But uh, every character has a single button attack, and then they've got, depending on what that attack is, there's a recharge. So if your character is equipped with a knife, then you just, you know, you hit the button to attack with the knife. But because of the nature of the attack, it's probably not going to take that long to recharge. However, if you're casting something like a fireball with your mage, that's probably going to take a little bit more time to recharge. But because of that, the the combat winds up being very intuitive, very fluid, and weirdly fast-paced. Yeah. Well, especially since, like, you have to think about, you know, spatially, because the enemies are also attacking on that same grid pattern. Yep. Like, so you can, you can, you know, sort of move around on the grid and kind of juke the enemies a little bit. And, um, and, and sort of like maneuver around, uh, and it's actually quite smart to think about, and there are going to be certain enemies, like you'll, you'll find these like skeletons with giant kite shields. You can't just attack them head on. Like you've, you've got to sort of, you know, get behind them and, you know, start attacking them from the side. And, um, you have to be careful about that. You have to really think about, you know, spatially kind of where you're at, because, you know, we sort of mentioned this earlier, but like, if you get cornered in this game, you're screwed. Like, oh yeah, you really are. That's <laughs> you've got to be very, very cognizant of the map uh, mm-hmm. because it can be very easy. It can be very, very easy to get double teamed and to get cornered. The like, I had one run where uh, I found myself in a room with three undead knights with those massive kite shields and huge mm-hmm. spears, and I was running around. I was trying to juke them, and then all the self. All of a sudden, like I, I attacked one of them and then backed up so that I couldn't get hit. And then I turned to my left and there's the other one flanking me from the left. And before I could move out of the way, the other one that I was trying to get away from 
basically had like a clever girl moment and came in and <laughs> just sandwiched me here in the corner. And they just essentially just kept stabbing me to death. And I was like, okay, well, this runs over. Guess I'll, guess I'll die. Guess I'll <laughs> yeah. die. I really had like a Robert Muldoon from Jurassic Park moment. I was like, clever girl. Yeah, like the, you know, you can be your own worst enemy, you know, in this game, depending on how you move, you have to be really aware of that. And you also have to be aware of like things in the environment, you know, like there's going to be, you know, your classic sort of dungeon, you know, retro dungeon crawler stuff, your pressure plates and, you know, and stuff like that are all over the place. So you got to think about that too. And traps and things like this. Yeah, Um, Some of the puzzles and traps start to get pretty intricate. Once you go in, you may be lured into a a false sense of security with uh, the first level or two be like, okay, I understand this. And then you get down and there's like, entire floors full of traps and all kind of things like it's not just the monsters that are trying to kill you the actual dungeon is trying to kill you as well yeah yeah there's there's plenty to look out for and it's also you know you can be rewarded from sort of keeping your your eyes peeled and you know finding little uh little secrets there there'll be like little stashes and things that you can find and um a few things kind of off of the beaten path but um i would recommend as you're kind of making your way through the dungeon like save often <laughs> um because you can you can save basically wherever Um, and just be like very aware of kind of your surroundings, consult your map often, uh, and save often would be my pieces of advice. Yes. Yes. Save often because like once your characters are dead, like this is permadeath. If your character dies, they dead. And if all of your characters are dead, then you're restarting. However, you can, like Seth said, you can save, you can go back to previous saves and the game will auto save uh, occasionally as well. So, you know, you, it's not quite the 80s to where you have to do everything in a single run, in a single playthrough. You know, you can still save, you can still go back to low games, but I definitely don't save uh, unless you know you're specifically safe there because I I might have made that mistake as well. Yeah, and don't and you you can like because your your party has got um, like a health meter. It's got like a sort of stamina or like willpower meter. It's also got a food meter, so it kind of works like Minecraft yeah. a little bit, where you want to make sure your party is fed so that those other resources can regenerate naturally. Um, and you can also uh, rest, but you want to even be careful about where you're resting too. Yep. Uh, cause that can bite you. So, you know, you just, you do have to think about what you're doing in this game, which like that, that sounds like whatever, a gimme, but like, you know, games today, like want you to beat them. Like many games today are not like challenging you in that way anymore. Like this game is saying, Hey, like you need to come in here and you need to think about your every move or you're not going to survive. (laughs) <laughs> you know that that being said if this is a genre that you've always been interested in but never really found a foothold in it there are enough accessibility features there is an easy difficulty you can turn mm-hmm. on the mini map you can continue to save there's enough here that you know i think if you want to turn all those on and and kind of you know take a few baby steps into this genre because this mm-hmm. isn't something you're familiar with completely understand if that's the case by the way completely understand um the game does 
you know, allow for that. The game does have enough options in here to say, okay, if this is your first one, let's go ahead and trigger this and trigger this. Let's, let's wean you in before we, you know, outright murder you over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's great. I, I loved it, you know, back when it first came out, I still love it today. And, uh, my only hope is that I, I hope they port Grimrock too. Cause, um, you know, Grimrock 2 came out a few years after the first one. I think it's even better. Um, even though, you know, I do sort of like this kind of cozy, compartmentalized sort of 10-hour, you know, almost you know exclusively interior, like, dungeon crawler thing. Grimrock 2 is, like, almost open world. Like, it takes place on, like, an island, but the puzzles are much more in-depth and the enemy variety is cooler and it's it's like a lot longer and there's it's just like it's a true sequel it's like the the bigger badder you know more open-ended sequel to uh to this one and i i hope they port that to to switch as well eventually uh i did ask the developers via email if that were was in the cards and they were sort of like ah we just kind of did this switch port for fun to see if we could do it but you know never say never sort of thing so here's hoping that this game does well enough to justify a Grimrock 2 switch port because I, I really do love these games and it was it was really nice to be able to go back to this and sort of re-experience it and you know have that kind of cozy nostalgic moment. <laughs> yeah, th- this is very much a throwback style experience when it comes to the combat, when it comes to the design, the grid layout, and and even the inventory management of which there will be mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of in this game. So be aware of that as well. If I were going to levy one complaint against the game, it's the translation to uh, console. Yeah. I, I, I do think specifically the control setup, there's a few things that I found kind of awkward about the controls. And I just wish there was an option to customize your controls a little bit. If they do wind up patching the game at all, I would like the ability to kind of retailer the controls to something that 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 feels better because even after several hours with the game, I found myself kind of accidentally doing things within the inventory screen and and hitting the wrong buttons, not necessarily to any major uh to to any major discrep, but I would like the ability to kind of tailor things a little bit in that regard. But honestly, I will say to, to that point, I will say, um, we did, you know, they, they did send up a follow-up email within a few days of the game's release. So maybe even by the time y'all are listening to this, there may be a patch already. There is a forthcoming patch that is going to, I'm, I'm reading the email right now, uh, filtered out accidental movements by checking that left stick was in neutral position before input inventory controls and usability enhanced map can now be closed by pressing B disabled left and right navigation of combo boxes to prevent accidental menu item selections and more. So um, there, there is a forthcoming patch that is going to, I think, smooth out a lot of those rough edges. So that is worth noting. Okay, cool. Forget everything I said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I really like the, 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 the really kind of compartmentalized, the, the really just claustrophobic feel of this game. I honestly, I, was speaking to you and I likened it to, to the, the Carl Urban dread movie. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I really, really like this take. I really like the conceit. I love the throwback experience because of course I am, you know, a gamer of a certain age, this type of game design was fairly contemporary when I was first getting into games. 
so I love seeing experiences like this with a lot more modern kind of fluff, a lot more modern uh, polish to them. So if you want to check it out again, it's probably not going to be for everybody, but if you want to check out Legend of Grimrock, it is available now on the Nintendo Switch for $14.99. Good price. I think that's a great price for it, actually. Good job. Good job pricing yeah. it, almost human. <laughs> <laughs> Good job pricing it. And again, you know, if you would like to see Legend of Grimrock 2, maybe let's, you know, vote with our wallets a little bit on this. Yes. But, uh, you know, let us know if you've played Legend of Grimrock, uh, the original PC version, or if you have played or are going to play this new Switch port. Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook, on Twitter. Come over, talk about the game in the Discord with our amazing community. But, you know, when it comes to these types of, of throwback experiences, you know, we really enjoyed this game specifically because you don't really see too many experiences like this in the video game landscape anymore. And with all of these, you know, retro throwback games that are being thrust back into our lives now, you know, again, the Prince of Persia's, again, the Golden Suns, we just wanted to make sure that when it comes to to uncopyable, unmistakable, unique video game experiences from years gone by, we may have indie developers out there who can bring back the experiences of grid-based first-person RPGs to us in the modern era, but ain't nobody going to be able to replicate the feel of some of those crazy peripherals we used to have. Oh, dude. There were so many weird and wild peripherals growing up as uh, as Nintendo fans mm-hmm. uh, in the age that we were and uh, as as long as we're sitting here talking about throwback retro stuff that like there's no way that they just not only do they not make them how they used to they wouldn't make them how they used to in the modern day and uh, we thought it would be a, a really fun uh, list to put together this week in the top five we were talking about those weird and wacky Nintendo accessories that are uh, maybe better left in the past. All right, Eric, the top five weird and wacky retro accessories in Nintendo history. What are the rules? Yes, for this, we are looking for the absolute strangest video game peripherals released for Nintendo consoles, specifically retro Nintendo consoles. And just quick point of clarification here, we are not talking about like hardware add-ons, aka like the Satellaview or the N64DD. We are not talking about hardware implementations. We are talking specifically about ways that let you... We are specifically talking about those peripherals, those implements that really changed up how you directly interact with the games. And, you know, everybody knows a lot of the famous ones, but we specifically wanted to find some absolutely bonkers ones that we think a few of you may have never heard of before. We've got some interesting, interesting pieces to talk about today, folks. Yeah. And I think, you know, retro is the other point of order here. I think the like the youngest thing on our top five this week is like 20 years old. So, yeah, (laughs) we are we're going retro with this one to, to go with the retro theme, you know. Of course. Uh, But specifically, we are shouting out the youngest one, I believe, on our list first. That is specifically the GameCube ASC2 keyboard controller. Man. (laughs) What a thing. You got to look up a picture of this thing. 
So if you guys thought the Wii U gamepad was bulky, imagine literally holding a full-size keyboard basically that was bookended by two halves of a GameCube controller. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's so it's so crazy to me that somebody said, "You know what? I like the keyboard, but one thing I've always wanted to do with it while I've been playing video games is be forced to hold it the entire time. Yeah. It's, I mean, especially on the, um, especially on the GameCube, I guess, I guess they were originally thinking of fantasy star online with this, which is fair enough. It's a popular game or whatever, but man, uh, what a weird and interesting sort of implement, especially when like, yeah, I, I have played some online games on consoles that, you know, I would just yeah. plug my, my keyboard into the console for. I, I've never once thought about uh, getting a GameCube controller that was also a keyboard. Yeah, and this isn't the first keyboard that's been released for Nintendo consoles before. A lot of people don't know that the Famicom actually had a keyboard. However... It didn't force you to hold it the whole time. I mean, this is the 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 two parts of the GameCube controller do not detach. Like it is one big honking singular piece of gaming peripheral weirdness. We've seen plenty of keyboards, we've seen plenty of controllers throughout uh video game history, but to have one actually literally combine the two into a single Frankenstein's monster of unwieldy gameplay oddity. And here, here's my question though. My, here's my question with this. I have the GameCube controller adapter for my Nintendo switch, right? Could I, Oh my God, don't, don't, (laughs) don't even, could I get this thing, use it on my Nintendo switch to play like hypnospace outlaw or like a typing game? (laughs) <laughs> that would be amazing. You, you probably could actually, which I mean, I don't even know. Goes to eBay I, live on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just the fact that like we've all seen the Wii U gamepad and of course the Nintendo Switch, the tablet with the two Joy-Cons attached into both sides, both of them look like mere infants next to the ginormousy of yes i've just made up a new word ginormousy of the the asc2 keyboard controller for the gamecube again like if you just look up a picture of it it probably wouldn't even fit horizontally on your phone yeah i can get one of these for like two three hundred bucks you know seems like a sound investment Sure, why not? And I'm sure when you inevitably laid it down to type on the keyboard aspect of it, I'm sure it didn't rock back and forth awkwardly whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. What a funny thing, man. I love it. I love it. I, I do. I love it so much. That's so bizarre. But honestly, that is the least strange of what we're going That's our number to five. talk about. <laughs> That's our number five. Yeah. Going into our number four. The fact that fitness peripherals have become more commonplace within the video game landscape, that's not necessarily too surprising. We've got Ring Fit, we've seen, you know, 
the Wii Fit board and all that stuff. But did you guys actually know there was an honest to goodness exercise bike released on the Super Nintendo called the Life Cycle? I'm not kidding. Exertainment bike. Oh yeah, exer exertainment is its own thing, you know. Patent pending exertainment. Patent um, pending. <laughs> if the patent is still pending at this point, I think we've got issues. Let let it go. Yeah, this weird uh Super Nintendo uh exercise bike that you plug into the Super Nintendo expansion port, and uh, yeah, apparently you could. There, there's like a speed racer game for it, a mountain bike rally game for it. And, uh, yeah, you hop on your exercise bike and, you know, burn some calories while you're playing games. See, ultimately, I do actually understand this because, again, you know, you've got your exercise bike. This is something you're going to be doing while you're at home. And most people would like to be entertained while they're doing something like this. You're going to be on this thing for, you know, presumably 15 minutes minimum just pedaling. So, you know, attempt to add a little bit of entertainment value to it. And one of the things apparently about the game, I've never had the quote unquote pleasure (laughs) of using this myself, but apparently one of the aspects of it was when you're playing the games, they would, the resistance of the bike would change dynamically with the terrain and slope of what you were biking on, which is admittedly pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is a really cool idea, but at the end of the day, there's an exercise bike for the Super Nintendo, you guys. Yeah, just so weird, man. Like, I I can't, I, I'm really curious to know how much this retailed for when it came out, but like, yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense because there was a huge, like, fitness craze um, in, in this time. And, you know, the idea of like marrying like jazzercising it, totally, and stuff like that. Totally. You <laughs> yeah. know, you could totally Richard Simmons popping on one of these things. You could see it. Right. You know, so I get it, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's so weird and interesting. And there's a, I would love to, you know, just see what this thing is like in person. Could you imagine being able to, you know, find a couple of these and making like some weird parody retro Peloton style video? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some of the commercials are fun. There's a really good video by Kelsey Lewin on YouTube uh, where she kind of yeah. goes into like the history and marketing of the thing. Seven ninety nine apparently was uh, was the price. I'm, I'm scrubbing through the video now. Seven ninety nine, which you know what? Not that bad of a price. All things that's too considered. bad. Yeah. Admittedly, that's not as much as I paid for my exercise bike that I own now, but still. Not as much as I thought it was going to be, to be completely honest with you. Yeah. Really interesting, weird little thing. Well, um, going into our number three, this is one, you know, we, we want to be careful when we say weird because we, we think that this is a, a very unique sort of footnote in Nintendo history. And this is something that is actually really cool. And yeah. we think it is I'm actually really glad they made it. I'm, gl- I'm glad they made it. It didn't get a, a mass market release. And this is why most of y'all pro- probably don't even know about it, but it's weird in its place in history because Nintendo Let's be honest, as much as we love Nintendo, it's probably the worst of the big three when it comes to accessibility. But lo and behold, even dating back all the way to the NES in 1990, um, they released the NES hands-free controller, an extraordinarily limited supply. One of them does sit in the Strong uh, National Museum of Play, uh, which is cool, and it's got the original box and the manual and, and everything. But this um, this little peripheral, like 
you know, was it, it had like a chin pad. It had like a, a rod to control with your breathing, which is really interesting and cool. And um, I just kind of love that they did this at all. Yeah, it's super interesting. If you've ever checked out, uh, there's an amazing game streamer called uh, Handicapable Sean, who basically plays using exactly this type of implement. Uh, but, you know, a more modern, I guess, iteration of it. But Nintendo was doing this back on the NES. Well, I say they were doing it. They made a lukewarm attempt at doing it. And then I guess just said, well, I guess people with special physical needs don't play video games. Let's forget this ever happened and never come back to this project again. Yeah. So that that's where a lot of the weirdness comes from. Really glad the fact that Nintendo explored this, especially in the early days of their video game development, but just kind of immediately gave up on it forever forever like especially now in today's day and age where accessibility has become such a big featured uh, aspect of the industry and how can we get more people in how can we continue to include more and more people this is such a a lovely hobby and there's so many special experiences out there how can we make sure that no one is excluded from being able to experience them and Nintendo thought the exact same thing for about two weeks back in September one year, back in the NES days, and never thought about it again. But it does still exist in very, like Seth said, limited supply. Yeah, I mean, just listen to this. I just want to read the, the press release really quickly that the Strong Museum um, also has. Um, real quick, this is a, a press release from January 6, 1990. It says, quote, Inspired by an Oklahoma youngster with complete paralysis, Nintendo of America Inc. engineers have developed a controller for the Nintendo Entertainment System that does not require the use of hand movements. This hands-free controller, dubbed the NES Hands-Free, works with all Nintendo game packs except those in the NES Zapper and NES PowerPad series. The NES Hands-Free simulates a standard joystick or controller by use of a sip and puff tube. It requires a minimal amount of head or neck dexterity and moderate lung capacity and function. The controller has been designed so that it can be used with another NES hands-free to allow for two-player games. The National Spinal Cord Injury Association has endorsed the NES hands-free controller for players of all ages based on the therapeutic and entertainment value of video games in general and on the ease of use and enabling nature of the NES hands-free specifically. I think that is so cool. Like yeah. this is back in 1990. Again, this is the type of accessibility we don't see from Nintendo today. So yeah, I was, I, I love that we have the option to, you know, to, to highlight this on the show this week. Yeah. And again, check out Handicapable Sean, great streamer, incredibly talented gamer in his own right. And he uses something akin to, to this apparatus, but like there are like, we, we have, kind of the formula we've got the plan sean is able to do he's, he's able to play and beat incredibly hard games using something like this let's make let's bring this back let's make this available to more people xbox like there and are, sony are doing it you're moving exactly, nintendo yeah exactly yeah especially with the tactile nature of the nintendo switch the motion controls and all of the other experimental ways to play games you really would have thought that this is something that nintendo would have implemented at a much larger scale than they did so yeah yeah you're moving nintendo 
sometimes to look forward, you got to look back. Well, the, we still, believe it or not, have got two other things that are even more unique uh, on our list. So going into our number two, we want to shout out the Singer Isaac sewing machine, which <laughs> is, I kid you not... <laughs> You know, now they they did attempt this with an NES knitting machine that never left the prototype phase. But yeah, that was that was actually a question in our first ever Halloween uh, trivia game with the Nintendo Pals. By the way, that that was a uh, thing. But the Singer uh, Isaac sewing machine was a thing that you could plug into your Game Boy Color with a built-in link cable and a cartridge that let you uh, go from you know stitches that either were pre-designed within the game or design your own. And uh, it is a very weird little thing. Yeah. I just, I love the fact that when they were building the Nintendo and they were coming up with all of these unique and interesting ideas, Nintendo was already trying to get super experimental with how people directly interacted with video games. The fact that they were right out the gate thinking of a sewing machine as a possible peripheral, they didn't do it. But the fact that they were already thinking about it, but then come the Game Boy Color, somebody at Nintendo was like, hey, you remember that sewing machine idea? I think that's worth revisiting. <laughs> yeah, man. I don't know. I, I got no, it's it is funny to see the thing in action. This again, Kelsey Lewin has got a has got a, a great video on this, and she even like has one that she shows in action. And uh, it's pretty neat. And um, yeah, it, it's a cool thing to, to see in person, man. Yeah, uh, I love the fact uh, that that this exists, frankly. And what may even be weirder than the fact that this exists is something kind of like this. Uh, Barbie fashion designer for the PC mm. used something very similar to this and actually rode that all the way to the World Video Game Hall of Fame last year. True. Uh, so very similarly to something like this, you were able to build patterns on your PC and use a very specialized device to print out these patterns and put them on your Barbie doll. They essentially tried to adapt something like that, you know, presumably because they saw something like Barbie fashion designer as was like, Oh, somebody made this viable. So they came back to it with the game boy colors. Like, well, we can create patterns and do printing and stuff like that. Now this wasn't, too far removed necessarily from what we eventually got with the Game Boy camera and the Game Boy printer and being able to print off basically the most rudimentary Instagram filters that you've ever seen. But yeah, an actual literal sewing machine for your Game Boy. Yeah. What a strange That's a thing, folks. <laughs> what a strange little thing that actually exists. Well, uh, believe it actually it or, exists. Believe it or not, we do have one thing left that is even weirder. But before we reveal it, do we have some honorable mentions? Of course, man. There's so many weird things out there, and we all know about the power glove. We all know about Rob the robot, yeah. the wishbone controller. There's a lot of really bizarre things out there. Uh, just still really interesting footnotes in Nintendo history. We talked about the Game Boy Color, the Game Boy Advance certainly had its fair share with stuff like the e-reader. Um, and there's so many more. Yeah. I mean, like you even think about the Nintendo Wii alone, you know, like all of those strange, like accessory packs and peripherals that they released for that, like the babysitting mama baby controller <laughs> that they released. 
you know, I, I think about like all of these strange little accessory kits, like the cooking accessory kits and yeah, you know, you even had like the Tony Hawk ride skateboard for crying out loud on the Wii. Yep. So there's, there's a lot. We, uh, we dug up this thing, the Nintendo 64 bio sensor, which is kind of like a precursor to the canceled Wii vitality sensor that never saw the light of day, like a little finger clip thing that detects your heart rate apparently came with a copy of Tetris 64, which would either speed up or slow down based on your heart rate. So yeah, that's kind of cool and funny. Um, (laughs) I'm glad that is a thing that existed at some point. Um, And it's something that, yeah, you something that you brought up that I completely forgot about, but I actually played it on, uh, on my uh, Game Boy Advance and DS were the Guitar Hero and the Band Hero stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I thought those were really cool. On the Nintendo DS, you could clip... They did a few things. Like, you, you, they made, like, a rumble pack for the DS that worked the same way. Like, you would, you know, stick it into the Game Boy Advance slot on the DS and the yep. DS Lite. And um, they did a Guitar Hero thing, which had, like, a little Guitar Hero fretboard, and you would hold your DS like a book. It actually was pretty comfortable. Like, putting your, you know, your hands... It had a little, like... Uh, strap that went around the back of your hand and um, it actually felt pretty good. And then for Band Hero, they even made these like slide on drum pads that would go over the top of like your D-pad and your face buttons. So that was kind of weird and fun. It's like, hey, we got to (laughs) put these Guitar Hero and Band Hero games on everything. What do we do about the DS? Well, no, we thought of that too. (laughs) But... You know, even beyond a sewing machine, even beyond the Game Boy camera, even beyond these handheld rock band and band hero implements, ladies and gentlemen, we have found a Nintendo accessory specifically for a handheld that is so completely bonkers that honestly, like, I still don't know how something like this even exists, Seth. Neither do I. Our number one is called the Game Boy Pocket Sonar, which is a a a peripheral that can it is it connects to your Game Boy. You put it into the the Game Boy cartridge slot. It has a cable that connects to a like a sonar that goes into the water with essentially a little pool noodle on it. And it just floats out there in the water and is able to put out a sonar and detect and display on your screen uh, if you have fish in the water so that you could use it for fishing. And, um, I, yeah, like I got nothing. Yeah, it's 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 not a game. No. You use it. You use the Game Boy Color screen as, an, as a literal fishing radar when you're IRL fishing. Yeah. And I... Would love to have been in the room. I'd love to have been anywhere near the company when this peripheral specifically was going through its various levels of approval. Who in the world said, you know what gamers famously love doing? Getting outside and being active. You know what's something that I always imagine people love doing together? Video games and fishing. (laughs) How can we bring those two famously connected pastimes together even more? I 
this boggles my mind that this exists. The fact that you would take a Game Boy Pocket or a Game Boy Color, the fact that you would take any video gaming device out on the open water. I mean, one slip of the hand and there goes your entertainment forever. There are so many red flags that are immediately brought up for me. Again, I just, I I do not understand on even a base level how something like this even goes beyond the conceptual phase, much less prototyping, much less actually getting out into the wild and being used by actual human beings. Yeah. Gaming Historian on YouTube has a really good in-depth video using this thing and like it's so interesting, like the way it works, like you throw the thing out in the water, it shows you exactly like the the depth that the fish are at when it detects them. It's a simple device. And I even can kind of understand, you know, fishing, especially in Japan in the 80s and 90s, fishing is a very big thing. Um, and like, yeah, like I, I could I could see how the idea would have come up but for it to be produced and released is another thing entirely. It's so weird and funny. Yeah, weirdly, the app itself is fairly impressive yeah. in its implementation. It's just why though. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> it is the it is the ultimate why though. I just think back to Jeff Bold, uh, Goldblum from Jurassic Park. It's like your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think whether or not they should. Yeah. Yeah, it's a strange one, man. Well, hopefully, um, hopefully, y'all, uh, you know, we're we're turned on to some new. <laughs> <laughs> new uh, peripherals and accessories in Nintendo. These are all real. You can fact check us on this. These existed. <laughs> Absolutely. But going down our list one more time, our number five, the GameCube ACS2 keyboard controller. Our number four, the Super Nintendo Lifecycle Exertainment Bike. <laughs> yes. Our number three, the NES Hands-Free Controller. Our number two, the Singer Isaac Sewing Machine. And our number one, the Game Boy Pocket Sonar. It's so weird, Seth. Like, I, I'm going to be thinking about that the entire rest of the weekend. Like, why, though? But if you guys are aware of any bonkers, crazy retro Nintendo peripherals, please let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook, on Twitter. Join the presumably weird conversation we're going to have about this in the Discord. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to know if you are aware, if we forgot to shout out your favorite weird bonkers crazy strange uh retro nintendo peripheral mm -hmm. but you know continuing on with this week's sort of you know retro theming eric i know that you got to hang out with somebody who knows a thing or two about retro games absolutely yes turns out that uh a rather iconic retro game mega man x just celebrated its 30th anniversary specifically the 30th anniversary of its north american release and for such a famous for such an iconic for such a classic and influential title we knew we had to bring in somebody special to join us for an all-in retrospective and honestly there is no bigger mega man fan that we know than the man who's joining our show right now.
right, dear listeners, I would like you all to help me welcome back to All In right now a very dear friend of ours from Retro Logic, Sam, aka the third strongest mole. Yay! I'm sorry I don't have Seth here, so there's not like the double the, the yays in stereo, Sam. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, you know, we're, we're talking Mega Man X celebrating its 30th anniversary. Honestly, we couldn't think of anyone better to uh, to have in this conversation. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm fresh off of uh, Mega Man Xmas, which has sort of been become a uh, tradition for me. It actually reaches long before I I streamed, uh, so uh, it's it's good timing. Actually, of course, it coincides with the uh, U.S. release date. Japanese release date was like December of '93. Yeah. U.S. January '94. Um, but I do have just a lot of memories going back a long way of. Um, Specifically at the end of the semester in college, uh, after exams are done with and there's really nothing to do but wait for my dad to pick me up and take me home for the holidays, <laughs> of just holing up in my dorm and marathoning Mega Man games. Uh, usually either, either X or Classic, just working through. Yeah, that's life goals as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, you're a huge Mega Man fan, uh, frequently playing Battle Network these days as well. Uh quite a bit of love for the blue bomber and we're very very happy to have you joining us but for i you know obviously you're well known within our community but if this is somebody's first episode if they somehow have not heard about you uh why don't you tell the the good people about what you do over at retro logic my friend yeah so retro logic is a uh a fortnightly podcast. I won't say bi-weekly. <laughs> bi-weekly actually means twice a week. I don't want to mislead people. Uh, a fortnightly, every 14 days, every yeah. other week podcast, uh, where we talk about pretty much There's everything There's somebody out there that gaming. thinks that you only have the podcast, that you only broadcast the podcast in Fortnite. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I played Fortnite like one time. Uh, no, we're all about retro games. Uh, I don't think... Fortnite does not count as retro. I'm going to draw a line there. It's it's still live, so no. <laughs> yeah. um, it's still current, so not not quite retro. We, we do generally have a pretty generous definition of retro. We're not we're not purists. We're we're pretty uh, welcoming of anybody who just loves games, uh, really, uh, and all kinds of retro too. It's not just Nintendo. Of course, we do love ourselves some Nintendo. Oh uh, yes, but uh, yeah, we have a Discord. We have a podcast. Uh, there's a couple associated uh, podcasts in the family, so to speak, about things like uh, movies or music as well. Mm -hmm. And we have a website. So you can actually find everything on the website, retrologic.games. There's also a blog. Uh, I do most of the writing for the blog. Hasn't been quite as active lately, but uh, we'll see what plans for that are like in the future. Uh, but the, the main flagship show is uh, John and I, uh, sometimes Dan. He's looking to get back involved again. He had to take a break. Uh, just and sometimes a guest, uh, just talking about uh, all kinds of different topics, usually just games we love, games we have a lot of uh, fond memories of, and how they still hold up today, and just celebrating everything about retro. Yeah, both Seth and I have guested over at the Retro Logic sites. Uh, Seth has shown up, I think, in every season of Retro Groove uh, at this point. Uh, so we are we are very familiar. Again, very happy to have you on. And if you haven't, 
checked out Retro Groove, that entire family of shows and programs they have going on. Make sure to check that out uh, as soon as possible. And, uh, you know, we'll hit that uh, here toward the end of the retrospective. But now we brought you in to talk about some Mega Man. So how about we talk about some Mega Man X? The, the 16-bit Blue Bomber, one of the greatest Super Nintendo games of all time. As you alluded to, the original Mega Man X released on the Super Nintendo in North America, January 19th, 1994, a cold three decades ago now. And there goes another gray hair. Fantastic. Uh, but, you know, I, I think Mega Man X was really a cornerstone for Capcom because at this point, Mega Man had already had five core games to his name. We were moving into the 16-bit era. Super Nintendo would come out in 1991. And with Mega Man being one of the biggest third-party properties in the gaming landscape, there were a lot of people wondering how the transition for the Blue Bomber was going to, how, how it was going to work. Uh, coming over to Nintendo's 16-bit console, and turned out it it worked out just fine. But uh, well, what are some of your earliest memories? I know you were talking about, uh, you know, marathoning Mega Man X while you were waiting to be picked up from college. But do you remember the first time you ever played it? I honestly don't. Uh, I, I'm the youngest of three brothers, and so uh, from my earliest memories, the Super Nintendo just existed in mm-hmm. our home. Um, so I, I couldn't tell you what the first game I played was. And even then you'd have to get into a definition of what counts as playing. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> one of my older brothers giving me a player two controller while playing Donkey Kong country and then taking it away. Once they actually tagged in Diddy Kong, <laughs> I don't know that that counts. Um, but you know, and so Mega Man X was, as far as I can remember, always there. I mean, I was less than two years old when this game came out. Um, so, yeah, earliest memories, hard to say. I do know I could not beat the game for quite some time. Uh, it was kind of, I think finally beating Mega Man X was one of the things that kicked off uh, my sort of what cemented the Super Nintendo specifically, and I think retro games in general for me, was uh, one of those last summers I had where I was still too young to have a summer job. So I was just at home. I was at home a lot with like nothing to do. Yeah. Uh, about like 14 years old, you know. And I was I just stayed in the basement playing old Super Nintendo games. And I rediscovered <laughs> a lot of a lot of games that uh, frustrated me when I was younger because they were too difficult. Um, by this point, you know, if I did get stuck, I could I could pull up game facts. You know, the old text game facts for oh yes, weirdly is like something people today might not think of. Now you go to YouTube, but this was this was in that time period, you know, <laughs> that short lived time period between you had to buy a magazine and you go to YouTube. Now we had text guides on game facts, which I've still used every now and then. Um, but uh, yeah, so so it was part of that sort of spate of revisiting old games. I started to actually finish a lot of games that I hadn't finished before. And Mega Man X was really like, I think, what made me fall in love with the Super Nintendo all over again 
at that point. Yeah. It's Stone Cold Classic, but I do personally have very vivid memories when it first came out. Mega Man was kind of in a weird spot uh, at that point. I had said previously that Mega Man had five core games that point to his name. And there may be some people out there thinking, but Eric, weren't there six Mega Man games on the NES? So Mega Man X was made concurrently with Mega Man 6. Mega Man X actually released several months earlier than Mega Man 6 did on the NES. Yeah, it's not alone in that. There were a lot of NES games because I think a lot of people forget how the NES, I think, ultimately had a larger install base than the Super Nintendo. Yeah, I think there were a lot of amazing... Even by end of both. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of amazing late... Uh, cycle games that came out on the NES, uh, but I, I do think are a lot. I do think a lot of people would be surprised to know that, you know, yeah. I, I think most people would just expect is like, okay, well, Capcom made six NES Mega Man games, and then they washed their hands of Mega Man and moved on to the Super Nintendo and Mega Man X. That wasn't quite the case, uh, but you know, there were still a lot of people that thought that you know, after five games coming out basically every year that the formula was getting kind of stale and with word of a brand new 16 bit evolution of the character, there were a lot of people interested. Okay. What is this new Mega Man going to bring to the table? And I will say when I first, like I do vividly remember the first time that I played the game and you know, you look back and it's still very immediately a Mega Man experience. It still immediately feels like Mega Man. But a lot of the things that the series has pioneered have become so commonplace within the franchise since then that it's kind of hard to, you know, it's kind of hard to remember sometimes about all the new things that Mega Man X wound up doing and wound up bringing to the franchise. Some of them may seem a little bit more pedestrian than others. But even just beyond the incredible visual upgrade offered by the Super Nintendo, there were so many little things, little tweaks to the formula that Mega Man X provided. The first of which is incredibly apparent. Mega Man X is the first game to have uh, an introductory level. Uh, Up to this point, you basically just immediately went into the Robot Master uh, robot master stage select but here in Mega Man X there's actually like an intro tutorial level and all of a sudden you're meeting this new character called Zero and all of a sudden this dude Vile is showing up uh, so is like right out the gate you're just thrust right into the game right out the gate you're meeting these new characters some insane stuff happens uh, you're going to the scripted boss fight which you lose so it was very quickly a, a very a very different feel, still very much a Mega Man feel, but a very different feel for a Mega Man title. Right. And I think confounding that a little bit too, is that they saw what worked about this, things like having an intro stage. And then when they made Mega Man 7, also on the Super Nintendo, they would do that again. So it's sort of, it's sort of cross-pollinated into the rest of the series. It's kind of odd because the X franchise as a whole really especially towards the end of his life, was always competing with other Mega Man spinoffs, which is weird to think about. And I mean, I am always blown away. I actually have the image up in front of me that 
there were eight different Mega Man games that came out in 2003. Now, that is counting two versions of Battle Network 4 separately, <laughs> but still, eight Mega Man games. So seven, yeah. if, you ju- if you just count Battle Network 4 as one. Like, it's, it's mind-blowing. And, <laughs> and how many do we get in 2023? Don't answer that. <laughs> well, uh, 1994 was actually similarly a pretty good year for the Blue Bomber because we did get Mega Man X. Like I said, we got Mega Man 6 uh, a couple months later. And then weirdly, 1994 was also the debut of the American Mega Man cartoon. Right. And and that was also actually, I think, my main introduction. So as I mentioned before, I kind of started with the Super Nintendo yeah. because of when I was born. I didn't have an NES. Uh, so most of what I knew about Mega Man up until Battle Network and playing it was Mega Man X and the cartoon. And that was pretty much it for me. Um, I might have heard of some other things. I remember renting Mega Man 64, aka Mega Man Legends, yep. uh, at one point. Um, but for the most part, my exposure to the classic series was very limited. Uh, it was actually something I experienced mostly going back through the old Mega Man Anniversary Collection yep. on the PS2 and GameCube. Yep. That's how I played most of those for the first time. I think I also do remember playing uh, the arcade game, Power Fighters. Power, yeah, at one Mega point. Man, the Power Battles, and Mega Man yeah. 2, the Power Fighters. Yep, yep, yep. Power Battles. Power Fighters is like super rare in the U.S. Uh, yeah. As an actual arcade machine. But, uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was very much a Mega Man world in 1994. And weirdly enough, I, <laughs> I think that... The, the cartoon is honestly the only reason we ever got Mega Man 7, frankly, on the Super Nintendo, because like I said, we wound up getting the cartoon based off the original series, which debuted after the final game from the original series came out on the NES. So you have the situation which is where... Which weird, because yeah. I, always, I always got the impression, because like the, the cartoon takes a lot of liberties, obviously. Of course. And it's it's strange, because in the cartoon, Proto Man fills the role base does in the games. And it's like, they had to know, right? I mean, I guess it came out right before Mega Man 7, but it's just, it's strange. Well, like I said, it came out right after Mega Man 6, and somebody probably went over at Capcom... And they said, it's like, well, you know, we're done making games for that character, right? We've moved on to this X character. And they're like, well, we've got this new show now. You've got to make another game based on this character. So I'm sure I'm I'm convinced that's the only reason why Mega Man 7 even exists. Yeah. And then and then Mega Man 8 exists, too, because exactly. they would do the same thing. They were, the X series was supposed to end at five. And then they just kept it going instead of letting the Zero series take the torch. Um, but, but going back to Mega Man X, there are a lot of other things that I just kind of want to touch on that really help push the series forward. Uh, another super apparent thing is the fact that, you know, in the original Mega Man series, there were, you know, a couple hidden power-ups, a couple hidden abilities, a couple hidden items that you could find throughout the course of, of those five and, and ultimately six games, Uh, a couple power-ups that were literally just called like item one, two, and three and, and stuff like that. But they really expanded upon that with Mega Man X with these hidden collectibles that you could find. And I remember for me, even after playing that, that introductory series, 
playing through Sting Chameleon stage and finding that hidden mid boss. Yeah. For me, that was that that was very much a oh, this game th- this really is the next level of Mega Man for me. This re- this game really did take this franchise to the next level because it's not just, you know, you go from left to right, top to bottom, you get to the boss, get their power and then move on to the next stage. There were actual really cool, really interesting, really tangible benefits to exploring and searching every nook and cranny. Right, because most of the things you could collect in classic Mega Man were not permanent upgrades. Like, you could find E-Tanks, which were consumables. Uh, The first game did have the magnet beam, but even things like the items or, like, the rush jet and things, those were just things you got for beating a stage. You didn't have to really find them or search for them. Very Um, often, yeah. There were a couple later ones, like getting beat, um... But yeah, X definitely changed that. And I think it was such a cool thing to have the armor, too. Oh, yeah, dude. Because you can't miss the boots in Joe no. Penguin's stage. So <laughs> no, you, you, you literally you, can't. You, yeah. get, you get the idea of like, okay, this is how it works. Like, you, you're you getting pieces of the armor. You notice, you know, okay, I have this white armor on my legs now. And you look at the box or you look at the, the label on the cartridge and you're like, oh, Mega Man has a full suit of white armor on that picture. So that means there's going to be more pieces of this. And so I I think back in the day, I I wasn't even, I didn't even find the body armor in Sting Chameleon stage. I don't think Uh, I knew where, I knew where the helmet and the buster were. Cause I remember I'd always get those. And my, my boss order is like cemented at this point. (laughs) Um, What's your boss? I still do it the same. I always start with penguin. Of course. Uh, It's it's usually penguin. um, Spark mandrel. uh, Well, actually I go to mammoth next. Generally I, I optimized for trying to minimize backtracking. So the only stage I have to revisit is penguins. Um, which is you know because you have to have Flame Mammoth's power to get the Heart Tank there, and you have to beat Chill Penguin stage to get the Heart Tank and Mammoth. They're mutually exclusive. Um, the only game which I've found you can actually not backtrack in 100% is X2, and that still relies on a glitch, sort of. Um, but a pretty easy one to pull off. Uh, but yeah, I go Penguin, Mammoth, Eagle... Uh, Boomer, Kawanger. I, I still want to call him Boomerang Beetle. I feel like they just like forgot to localize that name. <laughs> <laughs> See, that was actually going to be one of the points that I brought up is that's another change that Mega Man X made. Up until Mega Man X, all the robot masters were all, you know, man, whatever. Guts man, cut man, dust man, you know, bubble man, whatever. But now here in the Mega Man X franchise, they're all based off of animals, supposedly. Although to this day, I still have no clue what a Kawanger is. Well, a beetle. So Kuwagata yeah. is the Japanese word for beetle. So yep. I, yeah, it's, I assume it's, but like, yeah, the Japanese names actually all have this weird portmanteau thing that really doesn't make sense in English. And if you play X6, you notice they kept the Japanese names. That's where you get, you know, Blaze Heatniks and Infinity Maginian. Um, But yeah, it, it is interesting that they went from, because Lore-wise, all the Reploids, and this is something I think that Capcom just kind of forgot as the series went on. Yeah. All Reploids are supposed to be based on X's own design. Yeah. Um, Which is strange that they're all animals. At least all the Mavericks are. 
But I do wonder, because like the whole deal with Reploids is they're supposed to be capable of free will. Like Robot Masters aren't. That's explicitly part of the setup of Mega Man 1 is Wily steals the Robot Masters and reprograms them to be evil. And, you know, they follow their programming. But Reploids are supposed to have free will. Uh, So it is... I wonder if it was, like, an intentional, like, thing that they're playing with. Like, because generally we would would assume that, you know, humans, as opposed to animals, man, so to speak, is, you know, morally responsible in a way that animals aren't. But then we have this, like, inversion of that where the reploids, which are supposed to make choices for themselves actually look more like animals. I don't know if is that if that was like some sort of deep commentary or they're just like, I don't know, make a penguin. <laughs> I don't know. I the 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 Maverick robot masters from the X series are some of my across the entire X series are some of my favorite character design in video game history. Uh, I just thought they looked so, so cool, especially looking at X. You know, that was the coolest penguin I'd ever seen in my life when I saw Chill Penguin. I in- mean, a, a penguin that makes ice sculptures of himself so that he can blow them into you, especially. <laughs> and then Sting Chameleon, I thought, looked amazing. Uh, Spark Mandrill uh, was uh, just all of them. Storm Eagle was so cool. Flame Mammoth was still kind of weird, but still looked awesome. Just the the X series boss designs, I still absolutely love to this day. Uh, but uh, but but for your eight, you said uh, Chill Penguin, Flame Mammoth. You said Storm after that, then Boomer. Yeah, Storm, Boomer, Mandrill, uh, and then it's pretty much a toss up. You have everything you need at that point. Yeah. Um. Uh, well. Yeah, you got you got to do launch octopus before chameleon. So usually I'll just do octopus chameleon armadillo. Yeah, um, armored armadillo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, something you mentioned a few minutes ago, another one of the collectibles that they introduced in the X series are these heart tanks. The ability to actually increase X's maximum health in this game. Uh, that, in addition to the the new armor pieces. Uh, I read in an interview, KJ Inafune, the the mastermind behind old school Mega Man, before he was out here making, you know, Mighty Number no. 9, the greatest game of all time. Um, he said it very explicitly, like, those, those items and that thought process came about specifically because of the, the growing popularity of RPGs over in Japan. So they wanted to try to incorporate a couple ideas and a couple mechanics kind of similar to to give X at least some semblance of progression outside of gaining the boss weapon. So that's where they came up with the idea of getting these these new armor sets, which, in, you know, in, uh, in addition to just simply looking really cool, gave X some pretty significant power ups and boosts. Well, and I'm glad they did that instead of just sort of woodenly like copy pasting RPGs and saying like, let's put experience points in the game. And, you know, once you actually the zero games did that. And I always found, especially zero one feeling kind of tedious. Like, what do you mean? I can't do a three hit combo until I kill this many enemies. Like, come on. Um, (laughs) But uh, zero series is still great though. Despite. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, But I mean, Mega Man X really is. I've often called it a nearly perfect game. I do have some some quibbles with it. Maybe we'll get to that. But yeah, uh, it's just like 
And this is why we we did a ranking of Super Nintendo games, and I actually it beat out Earthbound for me. It was my number one pick, Mega Man X, and that's wow. because I think Mega Man X is a game I really do think I would recommend to everyone. Uh, Earthbound, I think, is an acquired taste, but Mega Man X really is just an almost perfect game, and everybody should play it. I mean, I guess some people might find it a little difficult, but like it's worth it. <laughs> that's all I have to say. It's worth it. I think one of the biggest reasons for that, because you can talk about mechanics, you can talk about visual fidelity. I mean, you could even talk about the music, which anybody who's not aware of this, Capcom in the late 80s and early 90s was just on another level when it came to video game music. And Mega Man games have always like yeah. landed that pretty much. Yeah. and Even the, the bad yeah, this- Mega Man games have great music. Yeah, the soundtracks coming out of Capcom action platformers are uniformly amazing for like a, a straight decade. Um, you know, this is where we got like the moon theme from DuckTales and, you know, that legendary Mega Man 2 soundtrack and all that stuff. But even even not taking all of that out of the equation, the biggest kind of intangible when it comes to the game is just the feel, how how it feels to control, how it actually feels to play with the controller and just the simple, you know, running, jumping, shooting, dashing, you know, all of that just immediately feels incredibly good. The game still plays like a dream to this day. And in addition to all of the, the extra items that you could find, the, the, you know, the, the hidden armor, the, the sub tanks, which themselves were also a really great evolution of the E-tank, uh, you know, these refillable mm-hmm. permanent E-tanks that you could collect, just the feel of the game. And I think honestly, in and amongst all of it, I think the biggest innovation that Mega Man X wound up making to the Mega Man franchise, frankly, was the wall jump. Yeah. No, that, that does change things. And it, it was clearly, I mean... That I think most people start with Chill Penguin, and you, you learn that you can avoid most of his attacks by staying on the wall. Like the wall jump is your best friend uh, for a lot of battles. Yeah, uh, and, and it does change things. And I mean, it's been noted before how the intro level does a great way of training you. You fight the bee blader, the floor drops out, you have to climb up. Yep. So the game, without having to throw any text at you perfectly teaches you okay this is a wall jump this is how you deal with this stuff and it's up to you to figure out how to use it the rest of the time Uh, and it's just perfect minimal tutorial level mario bros level one one exactly exactly and you know you mentioned going to chill penguin stage first uh you get the dash boots there so even from the early game you have access to this Dash Mega Man obviously had the slide in the original series, but here pretty quick out the gate for most people, you had this new wall jump ability and this new dash ability. And Mega Man X just perfected this, the, like the handling of X, regardless of if you're just going at his normal run speed. But even if, you know, once you get to the point where you can dash wall jump 
and just absolutely glide and cut through these stages, even then the game still plays like an absolute dream. Even Mm. when you're going that fast, it is still remarkably easy and remarkably intuitive to control. They were able somehow to find this really, really delicate balance with the controls in that game. It's easy, but it's not, it's not autopilot, right? No, absolutely not. I think I've played a number of modern games that do a lot of, the controls are easy and I think they're almost too easy. Like it feels like there's no reward for trying to learn them. Uh, and Mega Man X really like gets that sweet spot of like, it's never frustrating, but you feel like you're, you can feel yourself getting better at the game as you play. Um, and, and just the dash, just the simple changes from the slide Mega Man had. I mean, the slide wasn't introduced until uh, Mega Man 3. Yep. So it, wa- it wasn't quite core to Mega Man's design before, although we sometimes think of it as such, just like we think of the charge shot, which wasn't until Mega Man 4. Uh, all, you know, both those return, but now we have the dash. And the dash is importantly different in a few ways, namely that dash jumping also lets you jump further, which was never the case with the slide. Uh, before, and the ability to dash off a wall for a dash jump off the wall. Uh, now, I will ask, do you usually remap the dash um, when you're playing? I don't, actually. It uh, it initially uh, maps to the A button, I believe. And yep. yeah, that's, that's always the button that I use it for. Do you Good. do that? Uh, I, for a long time... I'm still very capable of claw gripping the controller so that I can always <laughs> keep my charge shot charged while oh, dash okay. jumping. Okay, um, I get yeah. But it, I, the funny thing is, it literally never even occurred to me that mapping dash to L button is something I would want to do until I played the Zero games, where it's mapped there by default because you only have two face buttons on the Game Boy Advance. Yep. Uh, and then I'm like, why wasn't I doing this for Mega Man X? But a part <laughs> of me still every now and then will just not bother remapping because weirdly enough, even though it's super uncomfortable, I will still play the game that way. And, and the way I'll usually grip it actually a lot of the time is I will kind of put my thumb over the B and Y button, like holding Y and then just kind of like flex it to hit the B button to jump. while having my index finger curled to the A button for dashes. (laughs) It's not comfortable. No, it doesn't sound like it. (laughs) But I can play the whole game that way because it's how I'm used to it. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, But, I I mean, yeah, I I still have very vivid memories of, like, once I got the dash, once I got the jump, and it was like, oh, there's actual momentum in this game. And, you know, learning how to do that, it just... Uh, I felt like I had unlocked the next level of, of Mega Man gameplay the first time I was playing through. Now, mm-hmm. Sigma, Sigma, the first time initially learning Sigma, he is an absolute butt in that game. Once you figure out how to beat him, you're like, why in the world was this guy always so hard? But I have very vivid memories of Sigma just handing me my own Tukas on a platter time after time after time. Well, I just remember the very first time I reached him after beating his little uh, pet dog, the Bell Garter, which yeah. is also just a great little. I, I love it when bad guys have a pet. You know that. Have you have you guys done a top ten? That should be an all in top ten. I'm calling it now. Bad guy pets get bad get guy Bell Garter pets. on there. Get K. Rule's <laughs> parrot. K. Rule's parrot on there. 
You know, um, you know, weirdly, we did do a top five good boys uh, a long Top five t- bad boys. Yeah, there yeah. We, we did a top five good boys, and we specifically were talking about that this week because of peanut butter at AGDQ. There we go. There we go. But yeah, I, I do remember because I, I beat the dog and like I, I didn't know what I was doing, but like I barely beat him. Right. And then Sigma, I get to be a proper first battle against Sigma. Yeah. And he just pulls out a lightsaber. Exactly. And I was not like expecting a, that. Like a literal lightsaber. So I, start- I just I was just like, <laughs> wait, that's a lightsaber. And I just let him kill me. I was like, OK, he's got a lightsaber. Great. And then he was like, you've got a wall jump, too, you jerk. But yeah. uh yeah. Sigma's great, but I do think that he was a good Sigma as a, a bad guy was a good evolution uh of the bad guy. And that's another thing that uh, Inafune was was talking about in terms of the Mega Man X franchise, is they also wanted to to kind of take the villains to the next level because Sigma wasn't just some cartoonish mustache twirling ne'er do well who was, you know, bad for the sake of being bad. Dr. Wiley's motivations were always, you know, Dr. Light disgraced me, so I'm going to kill everyone on the planet. But Sigma, they created specifically as a much more tragic figure, as somebody who was initially a good guy, but through no fault of their own, through a computer programming virus that wound up becoming a much bigger player within the X series as it went on, Sigma wound up becoming the the, the antagonist of the game against their will. And that's not something that's never really explicitly expressed throughout the game, but you know, you look at the Mega Man X lore and... Yeah, not, not within X1. And they, they no. it's sort of something that gets introduced later. And there's more and more focus put on the virus, which is something that... Because it's strange. Because, like, you, you read, like, the instruction manuals and stuff. The whole deal is that Reploids were supposed to be... be they were supposed to have free will. Yeah. Right? That's what makes them different from Robot Masters. And then they go full circle to, like, oh, but the virus breaks that. And then by X8, it's like, oh, but we can give ourselves the virus at will. And it's that's like the plot twist. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? But <laughs> I, I mean, the series as a whole, I think, just kind of lost its way in in many ways. Um, but uh, especially marathoning all those games back to back, I just you start to think about, wait a minute, <laughs> this is where we started. This is where we ended. Yeah. Um, but Sigma is interesting as a villain, I think, just um, even just going from Wily, who is always kind of, um, you know, the, the stock image of Wily is him, like, kowtowing before you after you blow up his, his machine, right? Like, exactly. He was yeah. ultimately a coward. Um, and, and usually by the end of the game, it's like, oh, he wasn't that big a threat after all. Whereas Sigma means business, you know, and he'll he'll go down cursing you with his last breath, you know. So uh, it's a very different vibe for sure. Yeah. It's weird to call the game darker because it's still so colorful, but yeah. you know, by the standards of 1994 video games and by the standards of classic Mega Man, it is a much darker take. It you is. Know? Absolutely. Even by the, time, by the time you get to those later games in the series, it's like, oh yeah, that last game, like most of the human race died. So well, I mean, like, we're, even- we're picking up the pieces now. I mean, even in Mega Man X, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil this for you, but again, the game's 30 years old. Like you get, you, you beat those eight stages and what happens? 
like Zero, this friend of yours, this seemingly mentor character who protected you in the very first level, he gets blown in half. Yeah. Well, so this this is actually a little bit of what I consider to be one of the game's main flaws is the rematch against Vile. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you got to pick Hashtag one. not Boba Fett. Like, well, yeah, yeah. Vile's great. So Vile <laughs> yeah, is the Vile's guy great. who I love you Vile. can't... He's the unbeatable boss of the first stage. Yeah. He captures you. Zero appears out of nowhere. Epic interest blasts his arm off with a single shot of his invincible robot armor just gets blown to smithereens with one charge shot from zero. And it's meant to motivate you. It's like, okay, I need to be as strong as zero so I can take this guy down. And, you know, you, you beat eight bosses, you get weapons, you get armor, you get a full heart tank. Now your health bar is as big as the boss's health bars. I mean, like everything is setting up for like, okay, now you're ready to take this guy on. It's time for the rematch. And Zero goes ahead of you and you're like, I see what you're doing. This time I get to save Zero, except no, he's still unbeatable. You have to get stunned again so that Zero can sacrifice himself to blow up the armor. Then you finish him off. And it's like, I feel like I was cheated. I was cheated at my moment. Every time I feel that way. I can see that. Like I, I get, I get wanting you know a heroic sacrifice moment. It's just they did not, they set it up well for something else, and then it, the the swerve just doesn't land for me. Fair enough. Practically, what you get out of it, though, if you haven't already found that piece of the armor, though, is another one of my favorite things about Mega Man X. Is you know they, in addition to everything else, they were trying to figure out how to go above and beyond what they had done in the Mega Man franchise. They had already introduced the charge shot at this point, but going into a brand new franchise, almost like a new Dragon Ball Z transformation, they've got to be like, well, we need another level of charge Mm -hmm. shot. So now you've got this extra super powerful Mega Buster shot on top of what you already had at the beginning of the game. And something that I just thought was the coolest thing on the planet when I first discovered it was once you get that, that level three charge shot, that massive wave of these little purple balls, uh, discovering that each of the individual character boss powers that you've gotten, those all have charge shot super abilities as well that you can use. That was so amazing to me. Using some of them are radically different charged up too. Absolutely, yeah. Like going back to Sting Chameleon, his normal shot is this little like three-way shot. You shoot out a little sting and then it splits into three projectiles and goes in three different directions. But if you charge shot, you become invincible for like a full minute, just straight up invincible. Yep. It's a little bit overpowered, to be honest. But it is that's actually. Right. It's absolutely right. overpowered. But yeah, seeing that not only had you just unlocked this extra charge shot level, but now you've subsequently unlocked these superpowers for all of the boss weapons you've already got. I was like, <laughs> I felt like Ultra Instinct Mega Man. And all of the, uh, and yeah, I always wish there were more places to use it, but I always love the fair. shotgun ice charge shot as well that yeah. you can make a little penguin sled and ride on it. There's yeah. just not enough long stretches there is one area in Sigma Stage 3, I think it is, 
where I always ride it over spikes just because I can, because I think <laughs> it's like the cool. And it's the thing is, it's not perfect because there's enemies that you have to just let hit you to do that. But I do it anyway. I'm like, I don't care. This, is, <laughs> this justifies this existing for me. Fair enough. Um, and yeah, I just, I really love that aspect of the game. And then, I mean, there is one thing for me and that is the, like the, the super armor, like when you get to chill penguin stage, which again, you know, a lot of people go to first, there is a section of that stage where you get to jump in and use the same super armor that just kicked your Mm -hmm. butt a few minutes ago. I do think that aspect of the game is very underutilized. I think like half of the stages, I do think four of the stages should have had a super armor segment. I think that that aspect of the game was vastly underutilized. I think it's just in X1, I believe it's just chill penguin and stink chameleon. I don't know. Cause I, I think it is, it's a little bit too, at least the way it's implemented, it kind of makes the game too easy because the armor has its own health bar. Yeah. And, you still have all your health if if it loses it. Um, so I don't know. I feel like it landed just right. There's and it, it returns in later games too. It, does. it was always yep. cool fighting Magma Dragoon with yeah. an armor um, <laughs> <Yeah>. in X four, <laughs> but it would have been cool if you could have done that in X one. I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I do love just the sheer um, absurd awesomeness of a robot piloting a mech. Just, you know, why not? Robotception. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say this as even yet another thing that somehow made that game even more awesome. Another thing that I do vividly remember is, you know, just like you talking about you, you know, you marathoning Mega Man X and going to GameFAQs. When this game originally came out, GameFAQs wasn't a thing. The internet wasn't a thing. And Capcom used that to their advantage, almost like they took a page out of Mortal Kombat's playbook. I very explicitly remember after the game came out, you know, one of my friends had it. I went over and we all played it. And, you know, we talked about how awesome it was. And pretty soon you started to hear whispers of, because like, hey, man, you can actually unlock the Hadouken in Mega Man X. Oh, yeah. And it kills everything in one hit. And the first time you hear that, it sounds like the fakest thing ever. But then all of a sudden, the whispers start to gain traction. More people start to talk about it. And it becomes this kind of legend, this, you know, schoolyard legend, this ultimate attack that you can unlock in Mega Man X, where you get the Ryu Hadouken from Street Fighter. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, it's a Capcom game. Capcom makes Street maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this sort of stuff is exactly why these all the fake rumors got latched onto because you oh, really yeah, didn't absolutely. know. Like, why not? There's a Hadoken in Mega Man X. What you're telling me that you know Shang Long in Street Fighter isn't exactly. real? Exactly. <laughs> you must defeat him to stand a chance. I mean, but uh, I, I still very vividly remember, and I I didn't believe it for the longest time. And the first time I saw it, it blew my little mind. I was like, my entire life up to this point has been a lie. I need to reassess everything that's ever happened to me. But uh, that that was just another absolutely mind blowing moment. It's a moment that you really can't replicate in this era because 
If you include something like that within a game these days, it's immediately spoiled for you online. Somebody's tweeting about it days before the game even comes out. There is no surprise to be had. And stuff like that from old school gaming are some of my favorite moments. Finding out about these well-hidden, incredibly awesome secrets that the devs, you know, just pounded deep into these games that they made. It's stuff like that that just really shows you the passion of the people working behind it and just how much fun they had making these classic games. There was just something to just something to the industry back then. There was a vibe and a feel, especially from Capcom games that that Capcom themselves hasn't even matched in my opinion uh, in many many years. Uh this this game represents a very special time in gaming for me. Whenever you look at, you know, top 20 and even top 10 lists of Super Nintendo games, you'll frequently see Mega Man X appearing on them. Well, and I think, too, it really was at a golden era, too, for like, um, because games were starting to get a lot longer. Like, yeah, you said, you know, Inafune even was like thinking very carefully about how RPGs were taking off. And those are, you know, very lengthy experiences. And so, you know, a game like Mega Man X even that has, you know, just eight Maverick stages, the intro stage, four Fortress stages after that, uh, you know, 13 levels is not a lot. You know, that's the later Mega Man NES games actually had more than that. Um, Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, they're so full of stuff and they're so carefully like they really made sure that you got you got your money's worth, so to speak, out of those 13 stages uh, in a way that just, you know, wouldn't be done for a while because, you know, and we've seen well into the later decades how, you know, open world, 200 hour, empty open worlds started yeah. to kind of dominate. And it feels like only recently, like developers have sort of learned the lesson from that. And I think it's one of the reasons Mega Man X holds up so well is because there is not a wasted pixel in this game. Yeah, it's um, a good point. And it really is. It's something I realized when I was playing the game at, you know, 13, 14 years old, going back to it, comparing it to, you know, the GameCube games that were out at the time, I think. Uh, and like, you know, this is just a much more satisfying. It's only a, you know, hour and a half experience now. But it's a much more satisfying hour and a half than I get out of any hour and a half playing anything else. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's concise time frame has led to so many people just replaying it ad nauseum. I mean, there's so many people that have gone back to Mega Man X and beaten it literally dozens or even hundreds of times. The game just feels oh, amazing. I've lost count. I know I know I've played it more times than Earthbound because it's a lot shorter and I've played Earthbound a double digit number of times. So make (laughs) of that what you will. I'm just glad I'm just glad that Capcom was able to restrain themselves from calling it Super Mega Man and just adding to the pile of Super games released for Nintendo 16-bit console. I mean, they'd already given us Super Ghouls and Ghosts, and actually Super Street Fighter 2 was the current iteration of the game at the time, so I'm just glad that we didn't have Super 
Mega Man and Super Mega Man uh, 2, uh, 3, the, 4, 5. The X naming, I do recall, led to some interesting rumors uh, after the release of Mega Man 9. Yeah. That uh, there was going to be a revival of Mega Man X, and it was the X was going to be 10, right? Yeah. And it was going to finally officially tie them together in a more uh, uh, more canon way of what exactly happened. Because we, we still don't actually know what happened to Dr. Light. Like, yeah. He presumably died of old age, although the later games treat him like he's more like a ghost than a recording. He shows up as a hologram. Yeah, he shows um, up as the hologram whenever you find one of the armor tanks in Mega Man X. Well, in the Mega Man X series, not just the first game. Uh, but yeah, that's that's yeah, that's the, kind the, the of later a tie. Games, the later games, he's like commenting on current events. Like he knows what's going on. Like it's not a recording anymore. It could be like an artificial intelligence based on his data i don't know but they they start the to doctor light hologram is the is patient zero it's ground zero yeah. for the sigma virus that's pretty canon. much <laughs> why not <laughs> exactly um, but yeah they like they never tell you what happened to the original mega man was he upgraded into mega man x what happened to roll what happened to rush what happened to base what happened to wiley we sort of know what happened to wiley yeah but not exactly well i know zero was like wiley's last Right. Zero uh, is Wily's last creation intended yeah. to defeat. So so presumably Wily knew about X. Light put X in the capsule to make sure that because he was a robot with free will to make yeah. sure that he would be a good guy. Um, and presumably Wily had no such reservations about Zero and just let him loose on the world. So we don't know what happened there. Did Zero kill all the classic characters? Very probably, because we know that, you know, canonically prior to the events of Mega Man X, you know, Zero was initially a bad guy. Right. But so, you don't really get that until X4. Exactly. So. Yeah. But they uh, sort of made it up as they went. As yeah, well. th that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. They, you know, they, they had a starting point. They're just like, we've got to build on it a little bit with every game. Um, but yeah, zero was, was way too cool to, to leave dead. So he of course immediately comes back and eventually becomes a full on playable character within the X series and makes uh, a habit of dying and coming back. At that's that. fair. <laughs> he's, he's very but good at that. It is interesting. I I'd actually remembered seeing an interview somewhere where zero was actually pitched initially as the new main character, the yeah. new mega man. Yep. And I think whoever it was that was reviewing it was like, that can't be Mega Man. He's not blue. Yeah. <laughs> and Inafune was like, you know what? You're right. Mega Man has to be blue. Dang. Uh, I am glad we got a more traditional Mega Man to go with Zero. I think the, the sort of uh, dichotomy between them is nice. I do too. Um, I think having them, uh, especially once they became dual protagonists, I think that I, you know, Especially with Mega Man X4, I really, really love Mega Man X4, X5, and X6, and going into the, the later games, okay, but... And Axel can just die in a fire. We don't need him. <laughs> well, thankfully, he's not in the first Mega Man X, so we don't have to talk about him too much. Right. But just in terms of Mega Man X, the way it took one of the biggest third-party franchises on the planet at the time and just shot it into the stratosphere, turned Mega Man from famous to legendary and still regarded as one of the greatest Super Nintendo games of all time. You said it's your 
number one Super Nintendo game of all time, Sam? Yep, I'm sticking with it. I would not blame you, and I would definitely put it uh, pretty high up there for me. And that's saying something because the Super Nintendo's game library had quite a few all-time classics on it. But if you've never played Mega Man X, they did release it. Like uh, Sam alluded to earlier, there was a Mega Man uh, X collection on the GameCube and on the PlayStation 2. In more recent years, they have released the Mega Man X Legacy Collection on the Nintendo Switch and other modern platforms. They even put Mega Man X on the SNES Classic. Yep. And they so, even remade it on the PSP. They did, yeah. I Mega Man X Maverick Hunter. Yeah. yeah. I haven't played it either. Honestly, I'm okay with that. But uh, But if you've somehow never played... Mega Man X, I do absolutely recommend uh, remedying that. It is one of the greatest action platformers of all time, one of the greatest Super Nintendo games of all time. Happy 30th anniversary to the Blue Bomber X uh, from the year 20XX. We Uh, made it. It's 20XX. (laughs) Exactly. It's 20XX. So, Sam, once again, thank you so much for joining us. And make sure that if people want to follow you and what you're doing over at RetroLogic, make sure they know where they can do that. Where can people find you? Right. So, RetroLogic.games is the main website. Uh, you can also just look for RetroLogic any, pretty much anywhere podcasts are listed. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel where I'm currently working my way through uh, live streaming the Battle Network series. Yes, you are. I'm on Battle Network 4. I'm over halfway through, actually. Nice. Because uh, I've even included some spinoffs in there. Um, so that is uh, Third Strongest Mole on YouTube. Nice. Yeah, Usually make sure I you check it. Mondays at 7 p.m. Yeah, Mega Mondays, right? Yep, Mega Mondays, 7 p.m. <laughs> Eastern. <laughs> yeah, make sure to check out Sam Third Strongest Mole. Make sure to check out everything that they're doing over at RetroLogic. Great, great friends of ours over there. And uh, yeah, we definitely got to set some time aside for me to come over and, and hang out with you guys again over there soon. Always happy to have you. Awesome. Well, uh, once again, help me roll out the red carpet for our friend Sam the third strongest mole. Yay! But um, that was that was a great, great uh, ton of fun talking about Mega Man X. So thank you once again for showing up, Sam. And, uh, and uh, we'll see you soon, my friend. All right. I'll see you. Oh, man. I'm so bummed I had to miss out on that conversation with y'all on Mega Man. Especially, like, I, I replayed Mega Man X the morning we were going to record that. And then I just had life stuff come up that night. And uh, my night got busy. So, unfortunately, I had to miss out on the chat with uh, with you and Sam when y'all recorded that. But I was glad that, that y'all got to have some fun and, and chat about Mega Man X with, with the biggest Mega Man X fan I've ever met. <laughs> it was a ton of fun and yeah just getting to revisit that game even in retrospective form was an absolute delight and again make sure to check out sam uh over at retro logic and make sure to check out his streaming and and all the stuff he has going on and all the places that we mentioned that will be in the show notes as well but also make sure to check out us if you haven't already make sure to follow us 
uh, at All In Media on YouTube, on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, at All In Podcast or All In Media should be able to find us. Also, make sure to check out our uh, Discord channel. We have an amazingly positive, wholesome community over in the Discord, and we would love for you to be a part of it. But in addition to the social media and the YouTube and the videos and the Discord and all that stuff, we even have a place for our patrons to check us out. And we think you should be one. I agree. You should go to patreon.com slash all in podcast and see which tier of support works for you. You can get a seven day free trial to the golden banana tier, which will get you a ton of exclusive content that goes up there every single week. So definitely uh, check that out. If you want to throw a few bones our way for our hard work it is very much appreciated. You can also pick up some merch at bit.ly slash all in merch. If you'd like uh, to get your hands on some all in merch, that's another great way to support the show. Or if you don't have any bones, throw away that's okay too drop in some words leaving us a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice wherever you listen to the show if you like what you've heard and uh and you want to support the show quick free and easy way to do it is to just give us a quick five-star review uh that is very very appreciated the best way to get our show in front of the people who need to hear it the bestest way the bestest way just like the bestest boy who speed ran gyromite this past week uh you're, you're awesome <laughs> peanut butter Quick shout out from all in. You're awesome. But uh, yeah, it is very much appreciated. It's absolutely very appreciated. We have so many people that we appreciate. Everybody who has dropped words, everybody who's picked up a piece of our merch at bit.ly slash all in merch. Everybody who has even shared our content across the internet. And of course, to our legendary patrons, to all of you, we would like to extend a great namaste. Namaste. Another one down. We uh, I enjoyed our little retro zone episode. Yes, this thank week. you for joining us in the retro zone, everybody. Mm-hmm. We had a ton of fun between Mega Man and Legend of Grimrock and all those weird peripherals. We had a lot of fun with this episode, and we're going to continue to have fun going deeper into 2024. We've already got a couple big releases under our belt. And again, make sure to check out next week's episode for our full review of Prince of Persia, the lost crown, but it don't Mm -hmm. stop there. I'm excited. That's going to be a fun uh, review discussion. And obviously there's going to be even more to, to chat about. So yeah, looking forward to next week. Absolutely, folks. But we've certainly got a lot to play. If you'd like to check out more All In content, do please check out our YouTube channel. We've got so many videos just from the past week that are up there. And honestly, we're going to go work on some even more stuff for you guys. So we will see you right back here next Saturday for another episode of All In. But until then, until then, I have been the Game Boy Advance Eric Reader. And I have been the Seth Bird controller for the Nintendo GameCube. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. You love you very much. Bye. Do 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 do.